Good afternoon and welcome to Startup Nation, a weekly show that celebrates innovation and entrepreneurship. Startup Nation is brought to you by Dublin BIC, the organisation that helps ambitious entrepreneurs to start and scale. I'm Connor Carmody. I hope you'll stay with me for the next hour as we explore the emerging technologies that are shaping our future world. We'll speak directly to founders to understand what it takes to start and to grow a business. This week, on our Futurescope slot, we're going to hear from Dr. Eileen Colletty from DCU on how society is consuming content, how that has changed and what does it mean for us all. Our One to Watch segment will explore one of the new ways people are consuming content. We'll be speaking directly to Camille Dunnigan on the brave new world of virtual reality and augmented reality. And finally, we're delighted to be joined by Mark Little, broadcaster and entrepreneur, on his journey from RTE's primetime to Storyful and now on to Kinzen. Mark is probably the most interesting commentator on information and misinformation at the present, so really looking forward to his insights. So that's our show today. Moving on then, and let's have a look at what's new in the world of innovation and entrepreneurship. And in our weekly uh, look at what's happening, uh, I picked out a couple of stories that might be of interest and, and will talk to us a little bit about entrepreneurship. We've all heard of the company Stripe and the Collison brothers from Limerick that have made it big in Silicon Valley, two amazing uh, entrepreneurs who are building a fantastic business. Um, and I see that they're now expanding into the Middle East uh, and opening an office there. And it's their first time expanding there. So global domination really on the cards uh, for these Limerick uh, chaps. You can't keep the Limerick guys down. And Stripe is now valued at 95 billion, which is the wealthiest private firm in Silicon Valley, kind of Amazing numbers when you think about it and hard for us to wrap our, our kind of head around that on this Sunday afternoon. Um, but also I, I see recently that they've announced that they're going to be creating a thousand jobs in Ireland uh, in, in the period ahead. So that's such an incredible story. And I think we could all be very proud of, of what they're building. Um, closer to home, but in some ways, but in other ways, as far away from home as we can get out into commercial space. We'll be talking today a lot about content, digital media, um, and we will need fast broadband to access that content. And I see that Elon Musk, who's the founder of SpaceX and the uh, the car Tesla, uh, um, is deploying a chain of satellites into space, his Starlink um, operation. He's deploying a cheap and fast broadband connection for remote rural locations across the world. And he has chosen the initial kit to come to Ireland and it's going to go into Kerry, the kingdom, and to the remote Black Valley. Um, and uh, I'm told that the first piece of kit has arrived in the kingdom and is expected to be installed within days. Um, excited to see where that might bring us and uh, really looking forward to see where that goes. And then finally, um, thinking about health and thinking about the current situation, COVID, and where we find ourselves and thinking about the impact that it's having on us as our society and our lives have been disrupted and our mental health. Um, we at Dublin Bic have worked with uh, Ken Cahill, a very successful entrepreneur now living in Boston, but has an Irish company called Silver Cloud. And they have been developing online therapy and wellness programs um, for millions of people globally and had been piloting with the HSE um, on, on a rollout and has now... Uh, move to a full national rollout and um, where they're delivering online uh, interventions, you know, for, for those of us who have depression or anxiety, we're struggling. Um, and this seems like a really good and a really timely support service, given where we're at at the moment um, with COVID and given and what that can do for us. So well done to Ken. And we look forward to to hearing how that will go. So let's move on then with the show. Okay, so next to our Futurescope segment, where we look at an emerging trend or technology and ask our guest expert how it will shape our future lives. 
I'm delighted to be joined this afternoon by Dr Eileen Cullity and Eileen is a postdoctoral researcher at the DCU Institute for Future Media and Journalism. Eileen, good afternoon and thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. So we're going to explore the idea that how society is consuming content has changed and we're going to look at kind of the impact on society. Um, If I could start by asking you around how do people access information and consume content in today's world and how has that changed I suppose over the last 20 years with the arrival of social media channels? Well when it comes to news traditional media like television is still the dominant source and in Ireland in particular radio is still very popular but the overall trend especially over the last uh, five or six years or so is that people increasingly rely on digital media and social media. But one of the really interesting things about the pandemic is that people turned to traditional media. So when they needed a reliable source and they were a bit suspicious of all the things that were online, they turned to um, to RTE in particular. So public opinion surveys for the HSE found that 80 to 90 percent of the adult population were using RTE as their main source of news about the pandemic. And in particular, there was a huge increase in youth audiences watching TV news. So I guess the big question now is whether that will translate into lasting consumption habits or when the pandemic is eventually over, whether people will just go back to using a lot of social media and digital media. And why, particularly for youth, why did they suddenly move to back to mainstream media? Was it, in, was it trust? Was it um, trying to get a deeper understanding that maybe they felt they weren't getting on social media? I think it's trust because... Well, another interesting aspect of the pandemic is that it prioritizes local information. And so a lot of the stuff we find um, online, if you're on social media, it might be coming from the US or coming from the UK. And suddenly there was a need to know what is happening in Ireland. What do I need to know in my own community or in my own country? And that's when people turned to mainstream traditional media because they trusted them to tell them what they needed to know. And the whole area of trust and we're going to explore it during the program the whole area of trust and how we we what what media we trust as we look for our sources of information what's your view on the on that issue of trust particularly as it relates to social media well we know that people generally don't trust what they they find or at least when they're asked in surveys they'll say they don't trust uh, social media but even if they don't trust it, you know, they're still consuming a lot of it. So I think that, that's part of the, the problem. And people might trust uh, traditional media, but trust alone isn't going to pay the bills and keep Irish media viable. And if you go back to the, the notion of, of the traditional media versus social media, and particularly in relation to the amount of time that people are spending on their screens. Are you seeing an issue around addiction, particularly in our youth, around how they're, they're, the amount of screen time, I suppose, that they're, they're, they're spending? Addiction isn't an area I would focus on, particularly myself, but I know there, there are a lot of concerns about just the design and the way social media platforms are designed, which encourages people to just keep scrolling through content. Um, if any of your listeners have young people in their lives who are on TikTok, they'll be very familiar with this, which is the constant scrolling of videos. And that's a very new way of consuming information because you're not necessarily taking things in. And it's just this constant uh, gratification and instant reaction. And that's the biggest criticism of uh, social media platforms because they just encourage us to be constantly focusing on something new all the time. That encourages sensational and outrageous content 
And it encourages us to just react instantly instead of thinking, you know, is this credible? Is this real? And how do we see the impact of that in our society? I mean, if I look at something and I react without giving it due consideration, what, what's that doing for us as a society? Well, it means that, you know, rumours and false claims can spread like wildfire. And of course, there have always been rumours and scams. None of these things are new. They're not, technology didn't create these things, but they can just now spread so much faster and so much wider. So we saw this during, uh, when COVID hit last year, the, the false rumours spreading on WhatsApp. We saw it at the beginning of this year when um, the young man in Dublin was shot by Gardaí and all these outrageous lies about him and his community spread online. And that's the problem with social media, that things just spread very quickly. People are encouraged to be outraged and not stop and think. I would say a deeper impact, though, is maybe that's thinking about individual citizens. The deeper impact is the knock-on consequences for the media sector in Ireland. You know, because digital media offers so much more choice. It's hard for Irish media to compete with Netflix and the amount of money Netflix has. And it's hard to make money in that digital market. So Google and Facebook take over 80% of all digital advertising revenue in Ireland. And that means that Irish businesses or Irish media are laying off staff. Regional media are closing. So we're creating these big gaps where there's more information than there ever was before. There's less reliable media. There are less journalists to actually tell us whether it's accurate or to investigate it. It's really interesting. Uh, so you could argue that the social media firms, the new wave of channels, are decimating the, the existing business model that, that provided journalism with most of its content. What's the answer, Eileen, do you think? Well, there are various proposals. So in Australia, they're trying to force the uh, major tech platforms, particularly Google and Facebook, because their main business is advertising, and force them to share some of their profits and reinvest them in media. That could go a long way to it because advertising is the, the big problem here. And I think when we think of Google, we think of it as a search engine. When we think of Facebook, we think of it as a social media platform. They're both quite explicitly advertising businesses. Yeah. And if you listen to their presentations, they're very clear that that's what their business is. So we need to recognize that they're in the advertising business and that advertising has a massive impact on whether we can have functional media in our own country. So there, there has been some talk of a digital tax, which would, would tax the large companies on, on, and kind of that money would then go to support traditional journalism. Is, is, there, does, is, that, is that the answer or are there other answers around how do we, how do we balance our media consum- con- consumption? Well, that's one of the answers. There's also a Future of Media Commission was set up by the government last year and that's been um, meeting now for the past three months. And some of the issues there, maybe we should relook at how we fund Irish media. So we have the, the public model where RTE is funded from the licence fee. But if we want, like local media is a huge concern because if local media folds or community media, well, then you're not getting court reporting, which I think is just a completely absurd scenario to think that we're in the 21st century and you can access or find out about the minutiae of people's everyday life on their Facebook feed but there mightn't be any recordings of what's actually happened in our public courts. So I think it's it's not just about blaming Google and Facebook. We also have to think as a society, how do we fund and make sure that there is good media, commercial and public, um, in our country? There's a, there's a balanced approach to our media. Could I go back? You've published a book on disinformation and manipulation in, in digital media. And I want to just briefly touch on, on the area of, of disinformation and um 
what's the latest or the latest thinking i suppose on that around we know it's an issue we know it's a, we've seen that in the elections in the us and, and our speakers during the course of the morning are going to talk to us about this but but what's your sense on it are we getting to grips with it is it is it increasing as an issue well, I think one of the problems with disinformation is that, and this whole area of you know fake news, hate speech, all of these things, is that it's very reactive. So before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, people were mainly concerned about foreign interference in elections. And then when COVID happened, I don't think there was, people weren't prepared for this kind of health disinformation and people having different opinions. There was a lack of scientific consensus. So those are very, very tricky issues. And I don't think we've gotten to grips with it, partly because we haven't gotten to grips with how to regulate the social media platforms. And this is a big issue in Ireland because those platforms have their, many of them have their EU headquarters here. So what we do uh, matters. There's been a lot more clarity on things like promoting media literacy. So in Ireland, we have um, a Media Literacy Ireland Association that brings together stakeholders you know, from education, from business, from media, uh, to try and work on how we can educate the public about media literacy. There's a new electoral commission that will regulate political advertising, but we haven't really got to grips with the core problem, which is the social media platforms, what they're allowed to do at the moment and whether they should be more transparent and accountable. And also, I suppose, how do we consume it? Because the very nature of the platforms means that we end up in a in an echo chamber or we end up in a group of like-minded people where we we think the same and we talk the same. So you get kind of groupthink. And so so there is the nature of the platforms, but there's also then the nature of us as consumers and how we're using the platforms, no? Yeah, and like I said, with the, the rumours and the scams, these things have always been there. Conspiracy theories have always been there. We can't blame platforms for these things. That, that would be a mistake. And also, I would say that Technology is amazing. It's absolutely incredible that we can now access information in a way that we never could before. So it's not about blaming technology, but it is about maybe making sure that if these uh, platforms have such an enormous societal influence, which they do, if you think of Facebook, it's not just a place where we get information and stay in contact with our friends. Lots of small businesses operate through Facebook. Mm. So it has a huge societal influence. And that influence has to be matched with some responsibilities, part of which could simply be providing more data to authorities or to researchers so that we actually understand in what circumstances do people end up joining conspiracy theory groups or becoming radicalized? Um, what could we do to stop racism and sexism being promoted on their platform? That type of stuff. So yeah. it's not about getting rid of it or telling people technology is bad, but it is about making sure that it's actually serving society. And presumably we're still in the, you know, in the broad context of time, we're still in the very, very early stage of, of these platforms and their development. I mean, it's 20 years. So we're still figuring out how to deal with them as a society. And I guess the, the platforms themselves are still figuring out their place in, in the wider world. Um, could I ask you uh, about information overload? And uh, we're, we're consuming vast amounts of content, we're producing vast amounts of content and collating it and making it available. What's the impact on us as a society of this huge amount of information that's available to us? Yeah, and it's something, I mean, I notice it myself, and I'm, I'm an academic, so you'd expect me to be very good in dealing <laughs> with information. But when you're just faced with so much content coming at you all the time, 
And as I mentioned, the way platforms are designed is encouraging you to just keep scrolling for more. One of the results is that you don't really take information in. You're just always skimming things and maybe instantly reacting by liking or sharing it. And when it comes to things like disinformation, we know that most people are actually very good at spotting when something is dodgy or fishy, but they need to pause first and think about it. And if they can just stop and ask themselves, is this really credible? They're actually very good at making a judgment. But everything about the design of the platforms encourages them not to stop and ask that question. It just encourages them to keep going, skim the headline and move on. And that also has implications for how we respond to it, because if people are only skimming content and they're just getting the gist of it, you need to be really careful when you're saying this information isn't true. You know, you need to be very explicit in emphasizing correct information all the time. I think that's been a weakness in journalism up until now, where they'll tend to, you know, emphasize the crazy conspiracy theory that's circulating online instead of emphasizing the correct information. Yeah. So focus and and I mean there is the there is the piece about tabloids have been with us forever and the sensationalism and the headlines will are what gets you viewers or what gets you clicks and that's still that's as relevant in print journalism in in broadcast media as it is in uh, in the new world of social media that sensationalism Absolutely. sensationalism sells and it brings in clicks and listeners and viewers. Absolutely, and again that reinforces this idea that this stuff is not new; it's just maybe accelerated, and there are sections of the media that have always served this very sensational, um, dubious, ethical uh, content. So that needs to be held up as well. Very good. Eileen, we've about a minute left. And um, in today's world, every conversation eventually comes around to COVID. Um, has has COVID, in, in terms of the content, the misinformation, has had, what's what's happened in COVID and the world of COVID theories? Has that had a particular impact on, on, on how we've been behaving as a society? Well, it's interesting that there's been so much COVID uh, disinformation and around vaccines. But if you look at the, the surveys, people's confidence and willingness to take the COVID vaccine is very high. And so I think one of the problems with disinformation is that there's an assumption that if people read something, that then they'll just believe it. It's not necessarily that they believe that claim, but it might be eroding trust over time. And in Ireland, the more striking thing is how certain groups, um, a lot of, say, right, far right or racist groups have used COVID as um, a platform to kind of push their views to attract people in. Uh, where they're not really interested in COVID, they're pushing a, a wider agenda. I think that's the bigger concern. Very good. Dr. Eileen Cullity uh, from the DCU Institute for Future Media and Journalism, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and uh, thank you very much. So moving on with our One to Watch segment and where you see a problem, there's an opportunity and potentially a business opportunity. And that's where the entrepreneurs step in. The people who see opportunity, who back themselves and the people who make things happen. And at Dublin Bic, we work with about 100 company founders each year where we help them from developing the plan to getting funding. Um, and as part of that, we have developed a one to watch an innovator uh, program where we look at people who are innovating in the marketplace. And I'm delighted to be joined this morning by Camille Dunnigan. Camille is a VR and AR producer and consultant with a background in parallel careers in theatre and tech, a founding member of Immersive, which is the voice for immersive technology sector in Ireland, and she's a creative director for Solus VR and an independent producer. Camille, busy, busy, and you're very welcome this morning. Good afternoon, Connor. Delighted to be here. Thanks so much. 
maybe to start, we were talking earlier uh, with Dr. Eileen Cullity and we were talking about content and how people are consuming content. And I'd like to discuss that with you. But first, for the benefit of my listeners, will you explain to me what is VR and AR? What's the difference and what are they? Sure, Connor. So with virtual reality, you use a headset. Um, so you put on a headset and your audio and visual system is completely taken over by that device. Um, and with augmented reality, the opposite is true, where you still are in your physical environment, seeing everything that you see around you and through usually a phone currently, but soon to be augmented reality glasses, you see additional content being overlaid into your environment. And that can be really useful, as you can imagine, for an industrial use case. You're looking at your photocopier and you're not sure what button you need to press. You put on your AR glasses and it brings you through an entire manual or guide with giving you the information where you want it, when you want it. And is this a reality today, Camille? Can I, can I do that today? Yes. Absolutely. In fact, VR and AR have been around for a very long time. Uh, there was a, a potential kind of boom in the 80s, which the content wasn't ready, the, the software wasn't ready, and the hardware wasn't ready, and the cost point wasn't ready. Absolutely, VR headsets and AR glasses, which are going to be coming out in about a year from now, uh, it, it's absolutely here. And uh, the cost point has come both for the content creation and for the hardware. Uh, at a really uh, at a really affordable price point, and um, so a headset is about three hundred and fifty euros now, um, and AR glasses will come in, in in and around the same price. So, in the world of an AR or AR glasses, I'll buy a set of glasses and then presumably I'll download apps like I do on my phone or whatever, and they will then bring me into this virtual world where I'll explore what's going on in that world. That's it. And and with these mediums, we're really looking at use cases. So where does virtual reality and augmented reality add value? Um, and there's there's countless metrics and proof uh, because we've, we've really been at this race for about three years now in, a, in quite a meaningful way. So all around the world, uh, a lot of strong metrics, use cases and research have come especially out of uh, the US and the UK. So we have a lot of proof of the efficacy of these mediums. We know that, you know, Boeing has increased productivity by 30% by using these mediums. So that's just one example. I can list a few more if you'd like. <laughs> wow. So how, so it's really interesting. So if productivity for a business uh, by, by the mm. use of, of AR or VR, is that because I can more efficiently get information and it helps me to solve the problem that I'm trying to solve quicker? Yes. For example, there's a piece of software called Gravity Sketch and a multitude of designers can create, co-create, say, a Ford engine uh, design. And uh, you can run through then different simulations of where the design is placed and decide which is the most effective and which is going to be the fastest on the productivity line. Fantastic. Uh, I heard you talking about something recently, I think, um, in developing. So COVID, we're all, we're all talking about COVID. It, it has consumed our lives for the last year and it has brought up um, issues, I think, for, for those of us. You know, we've been locked at home, particularly, I think you could argue about our teens and our, and our younger uh, members of society. And you've been working on something there, I hear. Yes, I have. Um, well, as we all know, uh, Zoom fatigue is a thing. And uh, I'm delighted to say that there's a real tangible benefit to meeting in virtual reality. So um, there are many remote collaboration platforms. In fact, we have two from Ireland, uh, meetingroom.io and uh, Engage from VR Immersive Education in Waterford. And those are social platforms which allow teams to meet and collaborate in real time 
Um, and they can be, as I mentioned, like around a Ford engine if they yeah. so wish, or they could just be having that spatial audio experience, which is absolutely not possible on Zoom. And you really feel a sense of presence with your colleagues. And um, building on those multitude of use cases uh, using remote collaboration or having training in these platforms, we have been working on a product called Solosphere, and this is a meditation and wellness platform um, that allows staff that might be using VR for other use cases such as training to have some respite and some solace and they go to a beautiful place in nature these are cinematic 8k resolution files filmed all around Ireland currently but we will be expanding to global nature content and you virtually go to the lake at Glendalough to the beautiful beaches of Wexford and you can have a meditation experience there. You can listen to a wisdom story from around the world with a meaningful message or you can carry out a breathing exercise which which guides you through. And I have to say breathing is one of the most important ways that we can relax and de-stress during these really difficult times. Wow, it sounds fantastic. So I, I can take a minute or two out of my day. I can transport myself virtually to Glendalough Lakes. I can sit by the lake. I can breathe. I can listen to the water. I can see it in front of me and it just gives me that sense of being being somewhere else other than than stuck at home all day. I, exactly, and it's always a sunny day in Solus Fior. <laughs> it's a, it's a lovely segue. Tell me a little bit about Solus Fior. What else do you do? It's it's a startup. You're in business a couple of years. What else do you do? We are, yeah. So actually, this journey started back in 2018. Um, I was general manager of Virtual Reality Ireland at the time, and uh, Stephen Pitcher, who sits across both the corporate and wellness world, approached us about creating a VR meditation app. So back then we created an MVP and it was a bit too early, to be honest. Um, but really now it's, it's finding its, its own. And uh, we were lucky enough to receive investment just before lockdown. And I spent the first six months of lockdown producing the app that is now available on a multitude of platforms. Um, and our original business model was to have headsets in office meeting rooms and even you know set design accordingly. So you step into this really relaxing and you take a micro break. So there's a lot of research around uh, micro breaks and the efficacy of those in and of themselves. And five minutes can even be enough. So we've got a series of five and also 10 minute meditations and and exercises that you can partake in. And so headsets and meeting rooms isn't really possible at the moment. Well, people aren't really in offices uh, for the most part. That will come back to a degree and uh, that offering will absolutely be there. But for now, we're primarily... um, sending headsets to people in their homes and working with organisations for this personalised VR experience, which is becoming more and more popular. A lot of companies are giving VR headsets to their staff for bonuses. And then a, a subscription for Solus VR is a nice add-on to that. Brilliant. An MVP is a, a minimum viable product. I think that's yes. probably your, your starting point in the development of, of what you're doing. Absolutely. So, and that's a really common first stage for organisations looking to try um, to step into this arena, but they don't know, you know, how to begin. Uh, pilots or MVPs are, are very, very popular. And uh, so that could be looking at a problem within the organisation um, that VRA or can address. And that's part of what I do as a consultant is bring companies through that journey. So where do, where can VR and AOR add value for your organisation? And find a problem, you know, design a, a VR or A solution to address that problem, build a prototype, test it, and then build out from there if all goes well, which it often does. Sounds fantastic. So, I mean, you did mention at the outset that there's been um, AOR, VR or, or around for, for years. Mm. Is Has the time now come? 
I absolutely believe so. I, I, I said it three years ago. Um, uh, it was a little bit early. I, I'm six years um, banging this drum, as it were, Connor. Um, but uh, three years ago, I really felt like it was it was here. The pandemic has brought both challenges and opportunities for our sector. Um, but I absolutely am 100% convinced that now is the time and, and actually organisations need to, to step onto this roadmap and, uh, you know, consultants like myself and, and other uh, members of the immersive network are here to help. Fantastic. We have a couple of seconds left, Camille, but if I if I were to ask you to come back in three years' time, um, what will the world look like from a VR perspective, AR perspective? Yeah, so so VR really is a, a tool in your multitude of content toolkits. So we'll still have our phones. Uh, we prob- probably will have AR glasses. But your VR headset is, is something that you jump into for a very specific use. And that can be to play. It can be to explore. It can be to train. Um, and it really is this um, interactive, immersive environment that's like no other medium. You really feel like you are there, you're interacting, you're meeting these people, you're doing these activities. So it's incredibly powerful for both play and for training. And just to mention as well that we're delighted to announce our partnership with the Immerse.io platform, a UK company, and we're, our content is available now on their content library. Fantastic. Camille, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Camille uh, this afternoon. Camille Dunnigan, who's the creative director for Solus Vior and a founding member of Immersive uh, and an independent producer. Camille, thanks so much and looking forward to seeing uh, more in the future. Sure thing. Welcome back to Startup Nation, our weekly salute to innovation, entrepreneurship and the technologies that are shaping our future world. As we've been discussing, Uh, Earlier on in the programme, starting and scaling a business is tough and not everyone makes it, uh, unfortunately. But each week we're going to speak to a founder who has succeeded, who has made it and see, can we uncover some ingredient that might just inspire or motivate uh, one of our listeners here today? And I am delighted to welcome Mark Little to join us this morning. Mark is the CEO and co-founder of Kinzen, previously a founder of uh, social news agency Storyful, led Twitter's media team in Europe and is a former TV news anchor and foreign correspondent at RTE. Mark, good afternoon and thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, Connor. Thanks, thanks so much. Uh, speaking to a broadcaster like you, I'm like the pupil getting to introduce and interview the headmaster uh, uh, and, and kind of, so go easy on me, Mark, if you will. Uh, oh, the pupil has become the master, I'm sure. <laughs> Can I start with you a little bit about your background? You uh, were the first Washington correspondent for RTE, you were the youngest, I believe, and I was looking at some background on you. Washington is a Disneyland for nerds and political anoraks. I think it was the quote from the time. What was that, what was that like as a, as a learning experience in, in Washington? Well, I think in retrospect, that was kind of the birth of my startup career. You know, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, so I think very deep within me was a kind of a piece of DNA that said I'd always end up working for myself, uh, even though I spent a very happy almost 20 years with RTE. And when I went to Washington... You know, I grew up uh, at the age of about four or five. I can remember saying to my father, watching the television news, that I wanted to do that. So, you know, from the very earliest age, I was a very precocious kid, a bit rebellious, um, really fascinated by American politics because it was just so dynamic. So by the time I got sent to Washington, uh, that's a great quote about being in Disneyland. I mean, I remember taking, you know, drives around Washington in the nighttime and going down the Washington Memorial and looking up at Lincoln's statue and literally walking down to the White House and, and pinching myself to think I was there. And 
what I realized in the coming years was over five years, I was the Washington correspondent that set up the bureaus, the very first one. So it was actually my first business uh, because I had to go there now with the help of some very um, stalwart RTE people like Tommy Goodman. Went and we set up the bureau, but I had to run that essentially like a startup. I was on my own. I was taking direction from Dublin. More important, I was kind of self-starter. And so those four or five years being exposed to not just American politics, but American life, society. This was the late 90s, remember. So this is around the time of the birth of Google and Amazon. I spent a lot of time traveling to Silicon Valley to see uh, the, the cutting edge of technology. So you know, in retrospect, it was a fantastic political reporting experience, but I think it gave me a sense of of a love affair with change and dynamism and how great ideas turn into great political uh, movements, but also great political action and, and great startups. So that's what I think in retrospect. And there's this lovely piece that I love when, it, when you hear about curiosity for the world around you, and, and, and I'm getting the sense of you in Washington setting up this bureau the world is starting to change. The internet is arriving. The tech giants are coming in and you're kind of, your mind is being opened at a point in time. Amazing. I remember being in San, San Francisco before, I think 96, 97. I went into to a local, whatever the technology shop or the, the gadget shop was at the time, reporting on the gadgets that would happen next. And, you know, the feeling of, of holding the future in your hand, you know, the, the, I certainly remember the first Macintosh computer in 1985 I used. I fell in love with technology then and being in the States, uh, the internet just took off in the late 90s and changed politics then and watched what happened with Barack Obama later on in 2008. To be given a ringside seat on politics is one thing, but to be actually given a sense of a deep connection to the technology driving change is then almost more than a liberation. It's, a, it's almost an infection. You, ne- you never lose that first touch, that first sense of the visceral power of a piece of high tech that's been developed by somebody who was laughed at when they came up with the idea. And that's what I realized. Sometimes the most revolutionary changes are the ones that make people feel most either uncomfortable uh, or look just crazy when they're, you know, they're conceived. Yeah. I, you came back then and you were, you were presenting prime time, um, high profile, secure job, pensionable, everything that your parents would have wanted. And then you gave it all up and you jumped into the startup world. What possessed you? Well, it's funny because I think my parents were quite happy to see me jump because, you know, they always felt that I should try something, create something. Um, I think what happened to me again was technology that came along and gave me a kick in the ass, which was around 2004 and five when I was reporting on places like Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, all the wars that began after 9-11, all the political upheavals of the time, Barack Obama's campaign in 2008. I started to realize that the Internet was actually replacing, in many ways, the role of the journalist. Um, now, obviously, that, that sort of people will know that to be a fact today. But back then, when I was watching, for example, young people on the streets of Tehran in 2009, becoming the eyewitnesses to history, when the journalists like me couldn't get into the country to report. And it was at that moment that I realized that my job uh, is kind of gilded cage of being a, you know, a reporter on the telly was becoming less relevant because of the rise of a new technology. Now, most people at the time in my business and still today look at the internet with almost a sense of paralyzing fear. But I remember thinking, well, what if I could create a news organization that was absolutely fit for this purpose, to give these ordinary people a way to create their own media and, and verify and validate that? And that's what became Storyful. 
it's interesting and we'll pick it up later on but the swing we were talking to Eileen from DCU this morning earlier on this afternoon and and she mentioned that the swing was come back to broadcast media potentially as people seek to trust more what it is they're consuming so I'm really looking forward to picking that up with you in in a little while can I ask you for the the entrepreneurs who are just getting started and you know in Dublin Bic we're supporting quite a lot of them every year what are the essential characteristics because you you will hear you've done this once and twice again you're on it again uh, of starting a business what are the essential characteristics from your perspective of the entrepreneur question like I, it boils down to two things and i think you mentioned one of them that is that's an insane curiosity with the problem you're trying to solve too many entrepreneurs i think have a great idea on a whiteboard this is the solution this is going to change everything they haven't understood the problem of individual they're trying to sell so, so if you're a community activist or you're someone who's involved with business and you see and experience a pain point you're probably better able to, to go to the world of the startup and somebody who has just academically worked out a solution problem. So fall in love with the problem of your customer and not the solution in your brain. And this is, I'm rubbing Jeff Bezos line here. That's, I think, the first thing because that will take care of a lot of the other stuff you don't know. And the second thing is resilience is you are going to get kicked in the head every day. But some days you just have a little less <laughs> pain yeah. than other days. And, and the more you just feel like this is a long run marathon, not a sprint. Uh, if you can do what uh, the famous example of the Vietnam War, where some of the American POWs and Noi, ones that thought they were never going out, <laughs> they'd be there for years, were the ones that actually survived yeah. with their mental health intact. So I always think with a startup entrepreneur, uh, think about four or five years of, of struggle sometimes pain, but over time you become resilient. You actually learn to incorporate that pain. And it, it's a bit like exercise. It'll hurt the hell for the first five miles. It really hurts you. But after a certain time, that pain becomes part of the process. And so I think that learning to be, I think the other phrase I like is anti-fragile, right? Wow. Using a little bit of pain to inoculate you against what's going to happen tomorrow. And over time, you start realizing, I've got this this is actually not that bad. I recovered from this yesterday and that's how good habits be, be formed as an entrepreneur. So those two things, curiosity, resilience, um, is, is the way I would describe the two essential inbuilt characteristics that you have to have or have to develop. But yeah, so the resilience we said comes up all the time in, in kind of the talks that we do. Um, tell me about building Storyful, which was your first startup that, that ultimately you exited from and you, you were mentioning there uh, looking at some of the riots and a sense of not being able to get in to cover them. Was that the genesis of Storyful? Yeah, it, it came out of two things, two moments about two weeks apart. The first moment was I was a foreign correspondent at that stage as well as a primetime anchor. So the place I loved most was Iran. Like every foreign correspondent will tell you there's one country or one story gets under their skin. That was the one for me. So I didn't get to go to this particular uh, story, which was an election, 2009, June, and I had to watch it on Twitter from home. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this has totally changed everything. It's the kids on the street with camera phones, connections to YouTube and Twitter that are telling this story. What, what would I do if I could help them? That was the first thing. Two weeks later, I was at a wedding in the west of Ireland on the banks of the Shannon. And I remember all the cool kids at the bar with their phones Michael Jackson had just died. I said, how do you know 
well, Twitter just told us. Now, this is 25 minutes before the Los Angeles Times reported his death. We right. knew that in, in, in Ireland. And I remember thinking, that's the other side of this. If rumors can circulate before the facts are established, well, then that's a danger. So it was the duality of that thing, the positivity of seeing Twitter as a medium for telling new stories, marginalized voices, and the dangers of rumor and false information spreading. Somewhere in the middle of that, I felt, was a mission. And, and that's what Storyful uh, was. So I spent the next six months then trying to persuade myself not, not to do it, not to do the crazy idea. And as I say, it was like an infection. By the end of the year, I just had to leave. And uh, everyone thought I was having a midlife crisis, and perhaps I was. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it turned out to be the most productive life crisis of, uh, of, of anybody I know. Better than a red sports car. Um, <laughs> uh I, I was kind of thinking then you mentioned that that you're standing at the bar and and we're hearing in Ireland that Michael Jackson has passed from Twitter. So it's very powerful uh, as a medium for disseminating information quickly. And yet there is, as you're saying, there's uh, another side to that, which is which leads us into the whole area of how do we trust the content that we're consuming? And I guess that's where Storyful came Um You were verifying valuable content um, and, and trying to get that that between, look, there's the speed to market, which is wonderful for content, and I've just found out something great, but then how do I trust it or how do I verify it? The underlying problems behind what I'd call the information crisis we're facing today, right? we've all seen the effects, whether it's in anti-vax information or what happened in the United States, with this idea that there's no one there to tell me what's true or not. So the first is overabundance of information. Now, there's, there's 500 hours uh, of YouTube video loaded every minute. Right, So there's so much information out there. When I started Storyful, it was about 24 hours. So we're all exposed to way more information. We can't cope. In the old days, it was the old journalist, gatekeeper, who helped us make sense of information. And their incentive was quality, was truth, was, was, you know, was, was basically telling us what was right and wrong. Now, what's happened is we now have these platforms arrive, and there's no gatekeeper anymore. Everything just appears in our news feeds. It's arranged by an algorithm that is designed to make us feel emotion and drive advertising. So that's the problem. Now, we didn't see the depth of that problem in the early days, 2010, 12, because what we were watching was the rise of, essentially, liberation movements. Um, if you look at Me Too, Black Lives Matter, the Arab Spring, all the positive things that were so great about the first wave of the Internet are now being essentially undermined by the idea now that anybody can hijack uh, our attention. And so that's what we're trying to fix is, is a problem that has emerged in the past few years where essentially information has been weaponized by political groups, sometimes corporate groups, um, a lot of the time just grassroots conspiracy theory movements. And so that's what we're trying to fix is who and how will we bring trust back um, to our daily information habits and, and that's really what we're trying to prove at Kinzen. So Storyful was the first wave. We're trying to help those people tell their, their stories to the world. And at Kinzen, we're trying to solve the problems that emerged out of the first wave of the Internet, which is how do we get someone to moderate uh, the experience of information around us in a way that helps us lead better lives uh, and, and really sort of pushes back against those dark forces that are trying to hijack the Internet. But if one looked back, Mark, at print journalism or indeed, you know, propaganda, if you want to use that phrase, has been used in many forms over the years. And is is the issue now that just the gatekeepers are different or that it's it's being 
weaponized, if I can use that phrase, on a mass scale that print or radio journalism couldn't get to? I mean, what or is it that the reach of tech platforms? It's it's the speed and it's the scale, right? So, like, you know, this information goes way back to the invention of the first newspapers in the 17th century, right? Adolf Hitler rose to power partly because he got radio and he hijacked and weaponized radio. We know that he radio used most recently. I think the example would be the, the the massacres in Rwanda were, were organized through these new forms of media, uh, at least for that marketplace. So we know that this has happened before, but we've never had the scale of information and the speed of transmission. They're the two new factors that distinguish this particular moment of information crisis from the previous information crises that have happened. Every time a new means of communication, whether it's telegraph, it's radio, it's a printing press, it, or, you know, every new invention creates some disturbance in the way we consume information. The difference now is just the speed and the scale. So what we've got to be doing is, is taking some of the technologies around machine learning and artificial intelligence and natural language processing and rebuilding a trustworthy structure where people themselves can sort out the difference between the truth and the fakes. Uh, we're going to need to be better than the dark forces in this ne next wave. So I think there will be um, some creation of a new layer of trust, but it's not going to be the same as it was when journalists owned the means of production. So I do people, I think particularly in this last year, there's a craving for respect for expertise in our society, but I don't think it's going to lead to a reversion back to the days when a kind of a handful of journalists would tell the nation what to believe. I don't necessarily think they were the good old days, but I, I do think there's going to have to be a return to a value that's going to be hardwired into the internet using the new technologies that have created the problem in the first place. So that's where I think um, I, I do agree with people who say, yes, we want to go back and trust information. But it's not going to be the same way as it was when it was all about scarcity. And um, that's, I think, one thing we've got to unpick and realize. And, I mean, there are, at the moment in society, there are the major tech platforms, and arguably they're the, the press barons of, of old, and they're the ones now who are deciding when and what we will consume and, and what echo chambers we live in. So have we just replaced one series of barons with another series? Yeah, they're different nature. They're not publishers. They're not like the old newspaper publishing groups. They're different. However, they do play that role. They are the adjudicators. And they, what they don't want to be, and I could tell you this working Twitter and knowing people in some of these platforms, they didn't think they were going to become the new, biggest news distribution in history. They're set up for people to be sharing, you know, pictures of funny cats. <laughs> now, they have taken on the mantle, as you say, of the new press barons. More, and more importantly, the algorithms that they built have taken on that role. So, that, you know, behind the scenes in your Facebook newsfeed, there's an algorithm that's kind of sorting out what you should see. And I suppose that's the faceless, um, you know, uh, intermediate gatekeeper that we've got to address here. So for me, one of the biggest, you know, things to understand is that communities can start very much easier than they used to be in the old days. So I think we'll start to see a decentralization. So right now, the biggest task for us is to create a regulatory framework that opens up the black box to work out what kind of information and data is going in to make these decisions, to you know create some sort of openness and transparency about the way content moderation happens in the platforms. But the really exciting long-term part, we start building 
much more localized community-based networks. Media's next big wave is the internet. is move away from the big dominant monopolistic platforms to much more hyper-local, hyper-niche platforms that will start emerging around communities, whether it's a town, uh, a, a place or a passion or a profession. And that, for me, is where I think we'll start to see the most exciting innovations, um, where we'll restore a sense of expertise in communities that are not controlled necessarily from Silicon Valley, but are part of the life around us. So this, and I remember reading about this maybe a year or two ago, I think Facebook put forward the notion of the village square, that we had these smaller communities as opposed to these broader broader platforms. But, but arguably the large tech platforms, Mark, are advertising models. It's about revenue generation and the content is positioned in such a way to drive clicks and to drive eyeballs and to drive advertising revenue. And it's kind of hard to see that changing. I think it is changing already. So I think, for example, with Facebook, clearly the Facebook groups, which have been since 2017, a very big focus for Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook is to develop that sense of community. Probably a community, if it's all about advertising, it's not going to bring the most trustworthy quality information to the top. So I think what's starting to happen, we're starting to see new forms, uh, potentially incentives and financial models that could support a much more quality-driven approach. So obviously subscription for quality newspapers, we're starting to see that succeed. And newspapers, not just in the United States, but here in Ireland, are starting to see the beginnings of a new independent business model around subscription. What worries me, and I think where we have to focus our attention, is in sustaining free information public media. It's got to be a real big focus for us as we go forward. And I think there are starting to see new models around donation, around uh, online commerce. For example, The Guardian has a membership model where you can opt in to support the news organization, but also consume some things for free. So those models, uh, and I think particularly first, you know, platforms like Twitter, Spotify, are starting to move toward this idea that there are people that will pay and that can support potentially the more public interest media. I'm very excited by the impact of the blockchain, the emergence of new technologies like NFTs. I know people probably doesn't trip off their tongue at the moment, but the idea that we can create assets in media that could actually go on to be monetized um, through distribution and quality networks. So there's a lot of new uh, business models that are emerging right now. A lot of them the decentralization of communities some to do with subscription. I think I move away from the idea of what we call programmatic advertising. That is like machine-driven advertising marketplaces where there's no humans involved. So I would make a comparison to 2008 and nine. The financial system was built on these artificial products, derivatives. It collapsed because we got lost control of it. We're starting to see the same kind of collapse in our information economy. So we'll move from people monetizing your eyeballs, your attention, to people trying to work out what your intention is as you go gather information. And I think that's where we'll start to see these exciting new models starting to take root, not just subscriptions or paywalls, but other ways for people to support quality media in their communities. Fantastic. Mark, go back to entrepreneurship for a moment. And um, so you built Storyful. um, You ultimately exited Storyful and you're now going again with Kinzen. Um, on the second time round and reflecting on the first time round, what are the what are the steps on that journey for somebody who's who's kind of listening into you um, and and is kind of saying, well, look, what, what am I? What's facing me, and what are the steps as I go I go on that journey? 
Yeah, looking back, I wish I could have told my whatever 39-year-old self that um, don't get too worried about the stuff you don't know, you know? If you have a passion and you know that you are the right person at the right moment, do something, do it. Even if you're not completely equipped with the skills that you see when you watch those conferences, you know, where you see like 25 years with t-shirts on the podium and just invented something that made multi-air in two weeks. Like, that's reality. The reality is, you're going to be on your own for quite a bit of time. People might even laugh at you, at your idea. You're going to have to get used to that, that idea. So I, I went back to myself at 39, I think, think about how you would train for or you would train to do any arduous task, uh, or you'd build any good habit You've just got to start. And so I was reading some recently. There's a great book called Atomic Habits. And it's a great moment when he says, you know, if you're trying to do something like to be a non-smoker, like if you want to give up cigarettes, you don't say I'm giving up cigarettes. You say I'm a non-smoker. You assume the identity of what you want to be, even if you've still got to work out the detail. So I would advise everybody, if you've got that passion in your stomach, in that gut, and you know now's the time, and you don't want to regret it in 20 years, make the jump even before you've developed all of the skills that you might have to you know, need and utilize in the coming journey, which will be tough, and treat it like training for some arduous task or developing some virtuous habit or breaking some addiction that you have. And that's what I would, I would say to myself back at 39. Now, to be honest, I'll be very brutally honest about this. You know, entrepreneurship, you know, nearly drove me mad because I was really having difficulties coping, not just with failure, but with success. Because, wow. you know, people tell you you're wonderful, but discovering that your idea is going to work. All the people that laughed at you, now they want to be your friend. <laughs> you'll, you'll get killed by goodwill. And investors will come who didn't talk to you, and they'll suddenly want to throw money at you. And now you'll think you're God, and you're infallible. And that's the most dangerous part of the journey. Uh, when someone comes with a big check and says to you, you're wonderful, you've got the next big thing, I want to invest in you, and you haven't actually worked out that uh, this is just another moment in your journey. Um, so, you know, coping with the lows is the one thing, and then being able to be measured about the high and the elation. And if you don't work out a way to sort of lessen the gap between the two, you will fall over and you will crash and you can do terrible damage to yourself, to your company, to your team. So, you know, it's developing that sort of idea of being better in your, in your mentality. So I would advise everybody, I know this is going to sound strange, put as much effort into protecting your relationships with your family, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your exercise, your mental health, your all those things as you do in going to startup conferences and reading all the great books about entrepreneurs because you know in the end of the day it's the it's the long distance run uh, it's getting fit for that that's way more important than learning what the latest uh, secret is from Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley I think that's where a lot of entrepreneurs go wrong and and uh, I certainly um, had enough of my failures I get embarrassed looking back at how many failures I had but I now realize I learned nothing from my successes. I've only ever learned from my failure. And, uh, and that's kind of what's allowed me to go a second time around at the advanced age I'm at um, without dropping it all. The other thing is get a good partner in business. Um, having a co-founder, working with somebody like Anya, the co-founder, my business partner, we are two 
very compatible but opposites in some other ways uh, and having someone that you trust implicitly uh, with you on the journey sometimes can be a huge advantage so consider a co-founder if you don't have one already. Mark thank you so much for your time uh, this afternoon it's been uh, an amazing journey through uh, uh, what you've built and what I presume you're going to build with Kinzen and we really look forward to to seeing its success in the future and maybe you'd come back and talk to us about it again uh, at some point into the future. It would be my pleasure Connor thanks for having me. Thanks a million, Mark, and the very best of luck. So thank you there to Mark Little uh, for joining us this morning, um, someone who never hesitates to to share his journey, his advice, and to help others who might be heading down a similar path. Thank you, Mark. So that brings us to the end of week one of Startup Nation, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We heard from uh, Camille Dunnigan, we heard from Dr. Eileen Cullity, and we heard from the amazing Mark Little, as always. And just reflecting back on what they said to us, uh, and particularly Mark mentioned, uh, you know, assuming the identity of who you want to be. Isn't that just such a lovely phrase and thinking about what you'd like to be and putting yourself in that those shoes and assuming that identity. And for those of you reflecting on that entrepreneurial journey, um, just take the jump. Um, there's going to be tough times ahead. There's going to be failures. There's going to be successes. There's going to be, you know, tough times. Mark talked about resilience. He talked about it being a marathon and not a sprint. Um, and they're just fantastic lessons to take from the program. So I hope you enjoyed that. Join us next week. We'll go uh, and have another look and a deep dive into the world of entrepreneurship. We will be looking at some success stories. We will have some super speakers back to join you again next week. And I really hope you can join us at 12 o'clock. We hope that the stories you heard today will inspire you to get started on whatever it is you are thinking of doing. If you're thinking of starting a business, if you want to build a scalable, innovative startup and you want support, please do get in touch with us at Dublin Bic. Startup at DublinBic.ie. We would be delighted to help you as you think about scaling and growing an international business. And I look forward to your company again next Sunday at 12 on Startup Nation. (laughs) 